Welcome to the 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast, a retrospective. Hey folks, Brennan here. Thanks for tuning in to our 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you want to reach out or follow us, we're on Facebook and YouTube as 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade, Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch as 25 Years of VTM, and on our website at 25yearsofvtm.com. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hey, welcome to 25 Years Presents Werewolf. And of course, uh, with me, we got Mike. How you doing, Mike? Pretty good, pretty good. I say that because if I sound a little terse, folks, it is in the <laughs> wee fucking hour of the morning I could record to catch up with Mike here. Um, and that's just... It's the way of the world when you're in Sweden and Mike's in America. So we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna make this work as we always do. So I'm just saying that because my power king is not kicking in. Power king <laughs> made when you don't endorse Red Bull. <laughs> hey, I'd, I'd rather have Power King than Red Bull. That name is invigorating. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of uh, the great book of pitching us stuff that is probably terrible for us, um, we're reviewing today Book of the Worms 2nd Edition, or revised if you prefer. Um, that's out there. I've seen both. We're just, you know which one. This is the one that includes, of course, the mighty Zizak, or Zahaya Zahak, as somebody told me once, but I like Zizak. Zizag got some spunk and spice, right? Like that Zizag, you read about like you can do that easy. I like I rather enjoy that. So um but before I get cracking, um right off the bat, we're gonna tell you some of the some of the different things to expect in this book. And we're gonna do that first. So if people don't want to wax poetic and you just want to know whether or not to pick it up, uh we're gonna do that. And we're gonna start with Mike here. Um Mike, uh, why should people get Book of the Worm second edition since we already like it? Um, Book of the Worm Second Edition is a look behind the curtain of all of the great big ominous stuff that you tell your werewolf players they should be afraid of, but you don't reveal because every storyteller should be able to create that aura of mystery. Uh, it's it's got the big awful named characters. It's got the names of secret pathways into the deepest, darkest parts of the abyss. It tells you what the shape of the mouth of the worm is and how many teeth he has. It's got fetishes. It's it's got powers. It's got names of origins of places and people and things. It's all it's all of that's in there. That's all of that's in there. <laughs> Just if, if you if you need evil stuff for your werewolf game. This is the book. Oh, and it's got right. text too. <laughs> All right. Tune in next time as we'll review the next book, 30 seconds or less, in this new review process. No. Um, so that's a pretty good take from a fan, right? It has all the things you need to do. And if you didn't catch from Mike's earnest voice there, he's basically urging you that there's just, there's just too much to cover in an hour. And that's valid. Doesn't mean we're not going to talk about it. We definitely are going to get into it. But the fact that we're going to do the entire book for people to listen to, we're not. <laughs> so we're going to you know. We're gonna get into it, though. What we found most interesting, what is stuff that's in here to get you talking and maybe be worth listening to for a little bit. Hopefully, uh, get you lined up with some of our opinions. I underline that. Um, that said, um, what I noticed, um, right off the bat, they tell you why the update. They knew you're going to ask this. In the era of revisions and second editions and so on and so forth, you need to know, why am I spending my money if I already got the first book? Well. How about better artwork? How about we now have more of a company backing us with the money? 
uh, to be able to do that to make it look even better the way maybe we intended. We have some pretty smart designers and editors that get on board to help us out, and uh, that's that's what they do, or at least they did to help them out uh, to formulate a solid book that you could stand behind um, that, that, that really does stand the test of time for what you have. Now, to me, when you grab the Book of the Worm first edition, the first one, and you look at that cover, you got some scared, sad guru. You're not really certain what's going on. Somebody's lying on the ground nearby and some tendrils in the dark. That's it. And I guess this is a good start as any. I mean, it's not the end of the world. And there's some good stuff in there. Let me take it away. Um, some interesting black spiral silhouettes and characters and all that fun stuff. Um, but when you get this book, it feels like they, they got their shit together. Is the best way I can do it because the Book of the Worm first edition is like trying to convince you with edgy speech. And I say edgy because it's edgy. It's written as if you're a guru and you're reading a forbidden book. And, you know, that's the narrative choice. However, what they had to have realized is that with the, uh, the first string of Werewolf, there was a lot of passionate speeches, words used like they're raping Gaia. They're raping the mouths of your women. They're raping your children. They're doing all sorts of things. And whoever they are, it's time to kick their ass. And now, when will you rage? Was it the first rape or the 15th rape I've used in print? That's the first edition. It's like, we're trying to piss you off to get you interested to buy this book. We're trying to get you excited to do it. That's okay for a time. But once you read them back to back like we've been doing, you essentially get, guys, we get the point. We're now to this point where we're trying to make sense of what you have here. And then they hit you with some good stuff, right? When you get to the tribe books, that format works because it's in the character. It's in the character of a stereotypical member of that tribe dealing with all the problems they have for all the things going on. That's cool. However, this Book of the Worm second edition hits you in the chops. This is as if they sat you down in the room and no bullshit, no in character. Hey, folks, we're going to talk about the worm in Book of the Worm 2nd Edition. It's kind of the point. Mm. We feel you need to land this 100% for your games and your enjoyment and for players to understand what they're talking about. And we feel we got to talk about some heavy topics. Now, about these heavy topics, et cetera, so on and so forth. And it's educational. It's an educational pitch to help you understand, but also to get you to think about your material. And there's some important things in here. That's what they went with. Let's nail the points and the options and the spinoffs and the what it could be without ever actually truly ironing down the things that would take the joy out of you running the worm. Hence, worth the name Book of the Worm. Also, if it's called Book of the Worm, they must have a theory behind it. And they did. After this book, it's considered the first in a series of the Triad series. This is the Book of the Worm. And I believe it's Book of the Weaver, then Book of the Wild. I might have that order wrong. But that's what it's going for. Whole books that explain all about what the triad is. That's their goal, which is super cool. So the update, this is the ramp off and show you what they want to do. And what they want to do is provide clarity to the animistic beliefs of the werewolves. But they're trying to get it to where you, out of character, understand that it's not hard canon just because you read it out of one book. Right? It's, it's, it's designed to get you to think and enjoy and and have not a hard, solid opinion. So there's no right and wrong way. I know for a fact that people hate it, you know, when when you when you speak and say this is the way you got to do it. Well, guess what? I'm still gonna say this is the way you got to do it. Because that's the point of having an opinion. And that's fucking my opinion. And that's and that's what I get to do. You get your podcast, you get to say the same thing without arguing back. But I hope it makes sense to you. 
Because the same thing in conversation, when you say, I feel it's this way, well, you can feel all you want to, I know it's this way. And if you want me to think differently, that's on you to feel your way to a discussion piece that gets me to see your point. Otherwise, I'm going to feel my way out that conversation. That's how that goes. <laughs> it's a soft statement. And uh, I'm not a soft person. I just don't speak that way. And I apologize. I say what I mean. I feel what I feel. So um, that being what it says, I do care about your opinion enough that when you give it, that it's rock solid and you believe in it so that I can believe in it too, especially if I feel you're correct. And that's why I do that. That said, um, another point of the why the update that I took down rules, compatibility and streamlining for second edition. Everyone was shocked when vampire fifth edition came out. I always seem to find a way to bring vampire up, but I think it's relevant to the whole line. Same company. So they operate along the same lines. And, and this company's had its IP bought, rinse, repeat, changed and cha- changed hands, locked down, opened up, weird maverick artist people come in, you know, get to use the material. That's what I refer to Martin Erickson as the weird artist people. They get to come in and now they get to do it for some reason. What qualifies them? Doesn't matter. They have a book and an idea. Here's the money. Make us money. Right. That's more or less how it went. And boom, you get V5. Right. As I've heard it lovingly called, why read the old material? Just give us what we want. Right. <laughs> that's, uh, that's the, I heard of it. I, I laughed my ass off when I heard it because it's kind of missing the point. And why I say that is because that material, just like Werewolf Fifth Edition, when that event inevitably comes out, it's an update. You cannot release an edition of a book and all you changed was a few rules and it's the same thing. People feel cheated. And the folks doing these books are not stupid. They know that. Why? They're fans first. They're fans first. Every one of them is a fan of what they're doing. It's a labor of love. A lot of them. That's exactly what it is. They work long and hard. So when you think about it, first edition had this weird honor system that went to the thousands for werewolf, right? And they had obscene gifts and sometimes very debatable rules and how they went and different ways to clink it together. Well, in Second edition werewolf, they're trying to clean that up, make it to where it's better understood, the mechanics fit. More importantly, we're starting to attach things to the right cosmology to make everything clearer. And that's that's a big focus point. But also, we got to give you something to follow on the line of this threat that we've already issued. Because when we launched Werewolf, we said, when will you rage? The apocalypse, the apocalypse, the apocalypse. And then we start talking about the Phoenix prophecy, you know, and all that stuff and silver packs and blah, blah, blah. Why? What's the point? Well, we got to step it up. Eventually, you're going to have to see what that's all about. And we're going to have to see where that dances down to the end of the road. And with that, you came out with novels. There were novels that were always in the wings to start being pitched to get out there that you could read and actually explore more of the werewolf stories as intended from the eyes of very talented authors. Um, I know a silver crown, if I got that name right, I remember that, the story of King Albrecht and, and all that stuff. You learn about cool silver things like Arkady and uh, et cetera. And um, those books are great. I'm not about to review those, but what I'm saying is those books make more sense when you read this book. I know because I read this book first and felt like I was missing a ship. I didn't fully understand what's going on, but I knew enough that when I actually was reading the novels, I was like, oh, shit, Zizak's in this novel. And I started to read more and get more in depth and understood why things were the way they were. And I really enjoyed it more. It helped me out. You may have done differently. You may have gotten them right when they came out and had it. And maybe you liked them. Maybe you didn't. And um, I'm interested in hearing that just to see how it is, because that's just not how it turned out for me. 
Now, with the continued story in a new edition and it not being the same thing you already purchased, we got to get into actually the known differences. I would say the most massive difference in this book actually comes down that the that in print, it says flat out and early on, the worm's current condition is the weaver's fault. It smashes it right in the face. What were your thoughts on that, Mike, when you read it? Did you agree, disagree? Um, so I don't have a frame of reference where that wasn't the case, right? When I first started playing Werewolf, I Worm Weaver, why do I care? Blah, blah, blah. Somewhere along the line, somebody explains to me, well, back in the day, the worm got trapped. And it is what it is. Um, but I am used to werewolf books kind of being evasive with their lore, like me having to apply some interpretation to it or look at it as my character would look at it if I'm playing a character in the context. Um, and so I find it useful that they just come straight out and tell me, okay, first thing you need to know, worm got trapped. Here's how it got trapped. And here's a couple of different ways you can see it respond to being stuck in this web. So, you know, thumbs up for me. For me, I agree. I think that it's been uh for them to firmly put it in the book is the point of it. Yep. The yep. others, because when it comes from a tribe book and it comes from someone in character, it's hard to, it's hard to swallow that pill. However, mm-hmm. that's been a pretty consistent theme that we've been seeing across tribe books and even other Pharaoh books. That's other shapeshifters. Excuse me. I should say the, like, you don't know what Pharaoh means. Um, <laughs> that's, what that, that's what that comes down to. Pretty cool. that They do that, but it's the way they did it. When you hear a neutral, almost uh, just casually talking about it, like they describe the wild as random creation, meaningless potential, and pointless genesis. <laughs> what does that tell you? Right? If you thought the wild was running around creating these beautiful paradises, that doesn't sound like we're creating a beautiful paradise. Sounds real dangerous and unpredictable. Right. <laughs> I think of black holes, typhoons. Um well, maybe not random creation, but uh, meaningless potential, great energy expended suddenly for no reason, mm-hmm. right? That sort of mm-hmm. thing, that there was nothing, and then suddenly there was something that would be the wild. And then they talk about the fact that the the weaver comes along and poses order, setting purpose and structure. That was the point. So in this great nothing, these two things come along, and then, of course, there's the worm, the ender of things, or as they put it, when a creation's role was fulfilled, it ceased to be that simple and served its purpose. And the worm was there to guide them on their way. And this is them in harmony. This is the triad working to what it is. Now, what I'm going to say is, is where does Guy enter the picture? Um, I have always assumed that the triad is either some kin to Gaia or the direct result of her creating the planes, right? Because the reason I think of them as some kin is because if they weren't, she wouldn't need assistance from her children to fix the problem. Like if she was directly their superior, she could just act on them messing up and fix it and everything would be the way she intended it, right? So they're probably like peers. In my well, mind. if that's them in balance and there was some entity and we're going to say Gaia uh, did that, then where where do they explain what? Why did the weaver suddenly cause the? Uh, the why did the weaver end the balance? What um, to you know, it, I know that it's driven mad. It's not clear to me why precisely why it's is driven mad. 
I don't I don't know that I might have read it and didn't realize what was going on, but I know that it's driven mad. And so it possesses the worm, which, by the way. When I listen to the triad, it sounds like the wild is the opposite of the weaver. And so I immediately ask why the worm instead of the wild. But so, well, well, we're going to get to that. We're actually we're actually jumping right to it, actually, um, because okay, the way right. it says this is like it says the weaver suddenly gains consciousness somehow and realize it gained nothing. Or, or it created nothing. This is what the Weaver realized. It is literally not creating a damn thing. It is taking from that which is already created and forcing it to become something else. Mm. And then claiming it as its own creations. So it's learning to covet. It's learning to possess. It's learning to, to dominate. It's it's all these aspects. Where is this coming from? And so I sat there and said, interesting. I feel that the wild is what it's saying, that the wild's creating all these things and there was no need to define whatever it was. Because who, of all of the creations in, all the, in the known world that are, that are the living, the live things, what has a need to define things and to put a place for things? <laughs> Sounds like us. Sounds it like is. Humans. It absolutely is. <laughs> Yeah, we human yeah. beings feel that there must be defined things because when you define a thing, you take the mystery away from them. You take the mystery away from it. You begin to understand it. When you understand it, you've studied it and dissected it, and you own a thing when you know a thing. Knowledge is power. So what this is saying to me is that the triad was perfectly fine until man came on the scene. Mm, yeah. Right? And when man came Ooh. on the scene... And when man came on the scene, then the weaver came on the scene. Because understand this, if you have the wild, you have all the creatures and the insects and everything doing its purpose. There was no weaver needed. A lot of folks want to say the weaver gave all those animals the reasons to be and blah, 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 blah. No, no, that's the human being in you talking. If you were never here, the wolf knows what the wolf should do. Right. And that's not because the magical web of the weaver came by and did it. Because the weaver creates nothing. It takes things yeah. and defines things. Why? Ooh. The, uh, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt. This is not a diversion. I just need to jump this jump in here. The weaver, following your train of thought, if the weaver's man, it shows up and needs to force order and name things and take control. The reason it imprisons the worm is because the worm means it has to let go to all its attachments. Right. If the worm's doing its job and killing and destroying stuff, the weaver's naming and organizing and putting stuff in buckets and the worm just comes along and eats it all. And it's like, well, you're wasting my time and I don't get to own these things if you keep breaking them. I like it. I'm sorry. I'm good. Go continue, please. No, you're fine. You're fine. It's, it's the same thing that it did to me. I felt they were urging you to come to a different thought a different way of looking at this. It's designed to do this because if mm -hmm. you look at these things in that way, you're getting more from your product. Number one, mm -hmm. number two, when you're getting more from your product. You're actually getting away from the fact that, wait a second, guru aren't special man is mm -hmm. when you think about it, it's werewolf, the apocalypse. It's a new beginning for the worlds after they have died and they're gone, meaning they have served their purpose. Thus, the worm is supposed to claim them because that's the way the triad's designed. Since the beginning, the worm takes that which has served its purpose and throws it away. But that would mean, what were the guru here to do? And we don't know, except we kind of do. 
there was an impergium and everyone's embarrassed by it. And they said it was terrible mm-hmm. running around curbing man doing whatever. But if you hear mankind tell it, we evolved, but there were different versions of man, weren't there? Mm-hmm. Cro-Magnon, for instance, you get what I'm saying? Different classifications. Yeah, yeah. There were talks. There were talks that the different uh, diversions of us, the scientific versions of us, I don't know why I suddenly can't, like Neolithic period stuff. But they, you know what I mean? Primitive man, yeah, yeah. as they evolved, one evolution turned around and was the extinction of the other. Evolutionary advantages and what have you. Some didn't go quietly. Now, if you think of this in that light, this sounds like to me that the guru might have been taken as wolves. And since they were effective pack hunters and human beings were already kind of clannish and packed up and could kill any animal teaming up using tools, because that's by design, that the weaver went ahead, helped construct something that could follow and do that and, and, and find a way to do that. And what I mean by that, shapeshifters. So here come the groom to do just that. And it's a different story entirely. Now, this book encourages this thought. In fact, the stargazers encourage this thought. That we, as werewolves, believe we understand what the triad is. Because we have imposed our animistic beliefs and our will to say it all comes from Gaia. Except, in the beginning, there was nothing. Where was Gaia in that nothing? Nobody has an answer for that. Mm. Right? So they all say the wild is what happened. We know what the Big Bang is. This lines up as the most logical thing. Now... Do you have to go that deep? Absolutely not. Do you have to give a shit about what we just said? Not at all. But what we're saying is risk it. Risk a little thought to try to see what you can come up with because you begin to realize that a change was coming. That from the story of the triad, what it says is that the balance gets disrupted, but it's by design. There would come a species so dominant that creation itself is changing to keep pace with what is there. But what could do that? Well, there's got to be a reason mankind's the only creature in existence with the consciousness to understand its own self-aware. It's, it's self-awareness. That's what it has. And thus it has a power to change what it does and to dominate its environment and thus creation. We get to do that. So who would be stronger than man? No one. No vampire. No mage. No werewolf. Mankind together is always the biggest threat. Where we might not singly be a threat as a species, you will never end us. And it's no coincidence that every supernal is a human before they find an evolution to where they're at or a way to become what they are. Now, that's deep thought, but it's also by design. If you're going to create a game where people are going to get hooked, it's going to be where mankind is the source of of all the good things potentially good or bad it's the only way we got to relate to it and that's where it is and for you werewolf fans hopefully you get something better from it than the traditional this book outlines you got to do that you got to be able to look at the worm in a way that allows you to promote its themes and what it's about and you got to remember the worm is not a crawling worm in the ground hiding from birds right it's not a worm it's also not a gigantic dragon flying around that is a worm, as I've heard it <laughs> pronounced before, which was weird. Worm, um, worm. It's a hydra, right? Yeah. This book highlights it's a hydra. When you think of it as a hydra, now you're getting it. Now, what's interesting is a lot of other tribe books already kind of hinted at that to say that the many heads of the worm. They already knew it was a hydra, but it's funny they don't ever call it a hydra. <laughs> now. Maybe that's some trademark issue or some fear of a trademark issue from <laughs> certain companies <laughs> used it before, but there you go. 
and hail Hydra, by the way. And because of that, <laughs> here you have here you have a different take on. I'm showing you the many heads of the Hydra and why. And and this book does have it. The classifications, though, Mike. Did you find that this uh, this suited what you were looking for? Like, did, in other words. Instead of us going over, because we already did go over the cosmology and kind of what you could expect of the worm and it's in his many heads, beast of war, blah, blah, blah. But it goes even further to describe the, the urge worms and, and, and so on. In these multi-classified layered classifications of the worm, were you like, Eureka, let's start the cult of the worm. I now get it. Or were you more or less like, oh, well, now this is relevant and I could like fully open up my game? Well, so, so both, right? Like on the, in, on the real practical side, there's going to come a time if you're ever fortunate enough to have a group of players that you can stick with for three, six months, a year, eventually you're going to get to the point where there needs to be that big, like climactic payoff, right? It's nice to be able to read about Phobok, the earthworm of fear and have like a great big evil guy for your big finale story moment. But at the same time, the book tells you if you need to just wrap your head around the worm so you understand it, like as a storyteller and how to use it narratively, just think of it as the dark side in Star Trek. Right. It's not that it's Star Trek, Star Wars. Oh, Lord Jesus. Um, think of it as the dark side. It's not like there's some great marauding space dragon planning evil things, but it's a, a pervasive influence. And I think the, the book sets those descriptions across from one another. You know, describing all of the aspects of the worm while also saying it's really just the dark side in a way that's perfect, perfect for any stories y'all are looking for answers. And what are some of the ways it gets into how to do just that? One is the aspect that the worm is a corrupter, first and foremost. The aspect that you, you're going to use the worm is only a tool of destruction, and you could all day, every day, have fun with that, your call. But... When you use this only a destructive tool, your every game session, I believe the example they had was, there you are walking down the road when five Fomori jump out and are ready to attack you. So this week begins with an initiative roll. And that's <laughs> as much werewolf as you get. For some of you, fuck yeah, that's my werewolf. Bring them on. <laughs> Nothing but glory for me and maybe some honor, but nobody cares about wisdom. That's for people who need spirits. All right. That's your werewolf game. No problems. I'm a little more mature than that. I require a little <laughs> more thought into what I do. There's a lot more that I could do according to the things I've read and the stuff I've been through. So I want to explore some of that and learn how to explore that in your world. So with that said, I want a little bit better. And it says flat out to corrupt something. One of the best tools that you could do is to give something free will. Now I'll help you out with that. A lot of you understand the, the fall of Satan. We get Lucifer's morning star fall from heaven. One of my favorite takes of that was always where um, Michael, you know, is. Uh, well, he, he gives, gives him the glory because he finally bests Lucifer and Lucifer lays down the sword and hands it over. And Michael takes it like, give me that. You're done. You, you screwed up. You shouldn't have done what you did. And Lucifer allows himself to be bound as, as he's brought. And I do mean that allows himself to be bound as he's brought up before the whole heavenly host. And, and God tells him he's going to go to, or excuse me, Michael tells him he's uh, earned a stay in hell. According to God, he's about to leave. And Lucifer turns around and talks to God because he is the only one that can do that. And he asks God for one thing, father, before I go, Give me this. Give them free will. 
It's all I ask. And it was done. And Lucifer went willingly. Now, the way I was told this, um, I had heard it from a priest, and he thought it was the most insidious thing ever. The question I had asked him is, why do men do evil things? And I wasn't getting it. And his response was free will. And it's something that stuck with me, and I saw it in movies, and I've seen it in books and all sorts of stuff like that. I thought it was pretty cool to hear it in every rendition. And uh, it always stuck with me because it haunted me. And then to see it in this book again, it reminded me why I fell in love with this book. Werewolf, I got hooked off of this book exactly. It's actually for one page. The same one that tells you about free will tells you about senseworm. I had a gripe about senseworm, and yes, we're going to hit that in a second since I <laughs> ever heard it. And uh, here's the thing. With free will, you give players enough rope to hang themselves with. Remember that. When they are faced with the fact that they do, you have to have to attack Arun all the time. Is there a time you're going to attack the wrong thing? Because you misunderstood the situation and you killed them. I'll give you an example. You come upon a fight and the guy standing up has tattoos all over his body. He looks to be really strong, probably the strongest out here. There's six people lying on the ground, busted up and broken and nearly unconscious. And he's standing above him and he has fangs in his mouth. And you realize, oh, that's a vampire. And you jump and you rip him apart. You kill him. He's done. Only to realize the six Fremori who are on the ground, that vampire just got done slaughtering, thinking it killed it, but it didn't understand what it was fighting. The Fomori got up and they're not all around you, and they're going to fight you. Because where they couldn't kill that older vampire, they certainly can kill you. Who just decided to stick your hand into it. And you had a choice to make. Do you have to judge a book by its cover? Or do you sit back and analyze the situation tactically and get it? Is that an example of free will? It's the free will of choice that every player has to make. Analyze the situation, certain you know what it is. And then caveat emptor, right? Buyer beware. Um the other facet of it that goes deeper, what if free will by choice goes further to something that you don't so no one easily could get? You mentioned Star Wars, Mike, where I may be kind of stumbling through this. I'll let you talk about it. So don't offend Star Wars fans. That's not that I'm not a fan. But let's just say I don't love it as much. But I'm <laughs> talking about when Anakin Skywalker is seduced by the Emperor. My question is. If Anakin is a prodigy and a badass, a supreme user of the Force, and he, he he knows it, and he's an innocent, and he is, by the way the movies you know portray him and by what you read about, and all things he is that, how is it the Emperor was able to just wink, wink, wiggle his way past this <laughs> super being and get him to, to fall to his side? How does that happen? Well, I mean, he reached inside Anakin's soul, grabbed his love, and twisted it. <laughs> Now, I like that. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. He said he oh. reached inside, grabbed his love, and I'm like, huh, help me out with that. Did he take anything from Anakin? No, I didn't say that. Okay. I didn't say that. He didn't. And I don't think he would because he doesn't have to. Right? What he wants is for Anakin to reflect on his thoughts from the time before he's corrupted and feel guilty. Because that was you, not me. I didn't make you kill all them kids. I didn't make you sacrifice everything you loved in the name of something that you knew was impossible. You did that. That guilt crushes his soul. Love Anakin's character, <laughs> by the way. Um, and, and I like that take on it, right? You're absolutely correct. It is something that is able to see the long game. The most yeah. dangerous person is the tactician. 
The tactician is the one that already knows what you're going to do, why you're going to do it, and the potential they can see moves ahead of what you might do that you think would change it up that it didn't surprise them at all. That's a frightening intellect that is sitting there analyzing a situation. And the worm is the king of it. It will end the queen of it, by the way. It will not lose this game. In World of the Apocalypse, the worm does not lose. You are not the winner. At best, you're the survivor. It will end all things. That's what it does. And it'll corrupt to do it. It'll it'll cheat to do it. It'll it'll do whatever it takes as it's been proven it. It's just you're going to keep swinging to the bitter end. And that's what the game's about. And if you want to run a game of hope, you certainly can. And I've seen those ran and end times and blah, blah, blah. We'll get to those books. But for the moment, let's just assume you know Worm wins. How does it win? And if you're a storyteller, this is the book that's going to educate you the concept of using free will to do this a little bit at a time to get your Anakin result by a player doing it all their own. My favorite, though, just a way to do it and not a long story here, is that you seduce a player with the power that a player naturally seeks. It's super easy. You run a game session as normal and you assign the XP. And when you assign the XP, you look to the players and say, okay, what are we buying, folks? Before next game or what have you, get it into me, however you do. They submit their requests. And as you're looking at the request, inevitably there's someone going, I want to go from a brawl of two to four so I can keep up with the run." <laughs> and right there, ding, 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 ding. I found my first contestant at, can you resist temptation? <laughs> and that contestant, I'm going to go, well, how did you think your character would learn this miraculous amount of skill that takes decades for people to master? How are you going to get it in like two weeks when we play next? How does that work? Now, I know what you're thinking. Bob, a good storyteller would tell that player that you can't do that and you wouldn't let him. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But a great storyteller would open the door to the possibility that what if they could learn that fast from the right teacher? And it's just not the one they should ever listen to. <laughs> what do you mean? All right, Mr. Ragabash, no problem. You want to go from a two to a four. I say that's going to be a scene. You say that there's going to be a great teacher you heard her from somewhere because you're the player, and typically you'll get this. I don't know. It's a teacher from somewhere who's going to know how to fight better than me, and I'll find the one that knows how to fight at a three, and I'll learn from him. And I'll find the one I know how to fight at a four, I'll learn from them. And I just go from a two, to a three, to a four. Easy math. <laughs> and you're like, okay, <laughs> let's run that. So you go to the guy who knows a three, veteran teacher. He's been teaching pups how to fight since blue in the face. Whatever werewolf insert tribe here, you imagine that it's your Karen. And he looks at you and says, you're not ready to learn what I got to teach you. What do you mean? What are you here to learn exactly? And if that player is not respectful and humble and like, would you mind teaching me? You know, I'm ready. I'm ready. Um, if they're not in that capacity to where they're open to learn something new, then don't. Not from that person. Because your goal is to show the honor and the wisdom that that elder has to know. I'm not about to teach someone how to further hurt things that already is coming to me on the wrong foot and doesn't even know how to say why they're here beyond stare at me and say, I want to keep up with the Arun. <laughs> right? Because if they did say that, you might be that great storyteller, the even better one. Like if you're behind great, the glorious storyteller who goes, the guy's going to smile, let you know, yeah, those damn Aruns, right? Now I remember when I was you. Back in the day, and the storyteller quickly adjusts, and that and this Arun teacher you thought, whoa, you were a ragabash? I started as one. And I made a mistake. 
What do you mean? I wanted to keep up with the R&R pack too. Here comes the long story talking about the purpose of the Ragabesh and the purpose of the Arun. And this mentor you never knew you had tells you, you know, it's not about your ability to do a stand-up fight and take someone out. It's about your ability to help your pack mate when they're drawing that heat down to make sure they survive the fight by taking out the guy who's lining up a sniper rifle full of silver for his head that's down a block. And you had the sense to check in the middle of the combat where he dove in head first. It's about the fact you're fighting something bigger than you that's stronger than you, and he could barely hold his head up, but he's too angry, too much rage in an iron, you see, to crash forward. He's going to have that fight. You need to be the wolf that understands you got to open up this beast and get it to bleed to weaken it. And somehow that's your only goal. Your goal is not to win alone, and it's not to keep up. Your goal is to help and assist and gain wisdom and honor and thus glory in doing so by everybody coming out whole. And that's because the strength of the pack is always better than the one wolf. Now that is a fantastic storyteller who helps that Ragabash player learn. And now I'm going to teach you how to get to a two to a three. But we're going to add a specialty to that. What do you mean? I'm going to teach you how to be the dirtiest fighter in the game. <laughs> you let him Look fight for glory. Right? <laughs> right? Let him fight for glory. You fight for fucking guy. We're about to learn the right way. <laughs> but we're talking worm here, right? Mm-hmm. So worm here, you, that player doesn't take that route. And you know they're not. Rick, so I'm talking about Mike here. This is a story about Mike, believe it or not. Mike didn't like that answer. You ain't going to teach me? Well, the hell would you somebody going to teach me? And he left. And he, he ridiculed everybody out of game going, Jesus, dude, it's werewolf. It's like this kind of a thing. Like, you know, you're just thinking, nah, man, I ain't going to deal with that. I know what I'm playing. I'm a freaking Silent Strider. That's what this is about. I'm a Silent Strider. I got issues, Silent Strider. And he went out to walk his thing. Well, what happened? He did run into somebody that could teach him. Who are you? I'm the dead spirit of an ancestor that's been trapped here forever. You're a silent strider. Can you help me? Well, I need to learn how to fight. Well, I know some ancient techniques. I've seen what you call fighting, and they have forgotten the ways of their ancestors. You going to teach me that? I certainly could. (laughs) Can you help me find my rest? Yeah. All right. And then you went on that journey, didn't you? And in that journey, what happened? He's taught you the ancient ways, but you didn't know you were learning the ancient ways of the forgotten, corrupt asshole who fell to the worm (laughs) ages ago, who was waiting for his chance to wiggle into somebody to live and breathe again. But you got that brawl of four, didn't you? And when you used it on your pack, (laughs) when you used it on your pack, it made a stronger story, and they saw what happened, but your pack had to beat you, rip it out of you, and then go, what the hell is wrong with you? And you were like, got that brawl of Fort, though, didn't I? <laughs> Mass beat Johnson is what I am. <laughs> that's what, that's where you're at. Now you're going to ask yourself, is that worth all that mess? Would you do something like that? And the answer is it's up to you in your games. If you want to get that deep, but free will is important because that's just a small example of what you can do with it compared to when you really put thought into it. Now, Sense Worm, now I'm going to ask you, Mike, truly, how do you think Sense Worm is best used? Um, I should say this. Oh. Not, as, not as a player, as a storyteller describing it. Oh, well, that's an entirely different answer. <laughs> um, see, if I'm a storyteller, Sense Worm is my op- opportunity to expand the setting, to make players feel like they're in the film, right? Um. They should know that these dry walls somehow feel slimy. They should know that they smell death in a place that's sterile. They should 
be distinctly unsettled by the things that I tell them they're experiencing because I shouldn't have to tell you, yes, there's worm in this place. You came looking for worm because we're playing a game where you kill the worm, where it dwells and where it breeds. Why would you ask me to sense the worm? So what you're really asking me for is to make the scene real. And I'm happy to oblige. Okay. So for you, when someone takes a gift sense worm, that is a plot device. Yep. That's exactly what it is. Okay. Um, I would say the book does agree with you, right? That's exactly what it says. That, and in fact, it gives you some technique tips to say, number one, don't let your players roll sense worm. Because if you do that, then they know if they made it or they didn't make it. And you want them to doubt. You want to be descriptive. You want to describe the sense. It's a sense worm, feel of the worm, sometimes taste. Sometimes it's a glimpse or a thought or, or thoughts that suddenly come to the surface. It's an awareness of the worm. And it comes in strengths, right? It's, it's degrees to there's levels to this to this ish, as they say, versus <laughs> just a standard, yes, the worm is here. This is not paladin detect evil tradition. Right. That's not what this is. The guy is not the evil villain because you can sense that he is. And that's that. Although certainly it can be that way. And that would be a great read of how the rules say that that it should go. However, why they say that you roll it is for the simple reason you also get to fudge the dice. One way or the other. Why might you do that? You might want to enhance the scene. It's very simple. You might have a player that has a god stat for sense worm. But right now, you don't want to reveal that the plot you've been working on for the last year and a half, that the mentor they've been going to the entire time is the most corrupt player in the game. Now, why that is, is because remember, you're rolling it. You're determining when you they should roll Sense Worm because you're keeping track of it. It's been their beacon the whole time. And if you do it that way, you're also the one that let them know where to go, seemingly at random. Right? And it's a cool it's a cool thing for the person with sense worm because usually it's not the whole pack that has it. But for those that do, they go somewhere and suddenly they get jinkies to steal from Scooby Doo. What's yeah. wrong? Well, you, know, you know how she is. And the moment she she gets her hackles up, something's up. What's going on? I don't know. Something about this place makes my skin crawl. And like Mike said, you're at a child's pizza place, an arcade. Everyone's having fun. People are laughing all around. Why is she getting goosebumps? Well, suddenly. The pack's fanning out, and they're trying to see what they can see, looking with new eyes, with new expectations, where before, if you just relied on a player to roll sense worm, they would say, ah, whatever, I'm in a Chuck E. Cheese, there's a ball pit, kids are having a blast, I'm just going to go through here. No way that escape Bane creature would be here, because everybody would be screaming, we'd see somebody else, get out of here and find it. It's The trail's getting cold. Now, why would that be? You rolled your sense worm and failed. Everybody knows it's here. Because they rolled sense worm, and since they know it's here, fail or pass, you might as well have had it succeed. Mm-hmm. That way, they know mm-hmm. definitely, right? Because you're in a scene, it has to be here. So that's the effect they highlight in the book: the pitfall of it not being taken for the plot device it's supposed to be. Now, you roll it, changes everything. The unknown will forever be the path best used to hook people into following along more story. More story. Um. But I nothing digress. Kills, nothing kills a player like curiosity. <laughs> well, nothing makes a better story than when you can't guess what's around the next corner. Oh, also true. Now, 
they get in all sorts of questions about the worm like you would expect. Um, definitely over mood and how to enhance it and whatnot. And a lot of those things, they're just redefining what was in the original book of the worm so you don't lose it, right? Then you get into the triad, but then kind of dig, right? They dive a bit more. They do go over the cosmology history and get in depth by what they meant by all the things. And that's uh, some of what we tapped into before. Uh, but the important element here is that madness and, and what that what that kind of means. But what I want to do is change your thought process on that a little bit and just just ask you that when you read it, keep an open mind to understand that one of the scariest thoughts I had when I read this, taking notes, because it was where they were being as straightforward as they could, it's, it keeps being referred to as the triad. And the worm is a hydra. And the hydra traditionally has three heads. That chilled me to the bone. I had a mic moment. I was like, ah, is it? Wait a second. What if the triad is the worm in balance? What if that's what it was the whole time? That would mean Ga- what, what's Gaia then? And I, and I couldn't grasp it. Like my brain was like, well, how big? I think we're, we're really too into this right now. But at the same time, I went far out. I think I'm going to stick with that. I think that's what they're saying. When you look at it, each head like Beast of War could be called wild, actually, if it wasn't corrupt. Mm-hmm, so on mm-hmm. and so forth. We can peel back the layers and see the aspects of it. And they got a clever thing with saying that now the worm mimics these heads. And I'm like, why would it mimic them at all? Serve your function in the things that are done. Well, and if, if you really want to get, get, get a, get a wormception going, right? Both things could be true. Remember you said the weaver comes along when man comes along. Uh-huh. It could be, it could be that the worm is the worm. And Gaia is this entity that we've been calling the wild doing all of her creation. Right. But then man comes along, drives the worm crazy. The wild goes over here. We call her Gaia. And then this image we have of the worm, the weaver of the wild, we've just been calling the worm. <laughs> it's it's a lot of worm flip hat trickery that we got going on in this episode. But um, this it's, book does bring that out. It's glorious. <laughs> now, when we look at things in here. You're going to find all sorts of new creepy crawlies introduced to your game. And what we're doing is we're skipping past the more uh, esoteric, is the term I want to use, the more outlandish. I only say that because it's hard for anyone to get into this. Nobody can grasp the triad, which is why you're free to wax poetic about it. You can't. You can't figure it out. The human mind cannot conceive of what the world existence was when it was nothing. It is a lesson in pure folly. You can't because you're a being that exists. Therefore, you cannot contemplate nothing. That's what they're saying. It's a paradox thought experiment. However, the triad also don't exist in the flesh. They're not here. They exist beyond time and space. That's the other reason why. They're not even on your plane of thought for you to ever figure out. So if that's true, the only thing you could ever do is suffer the interpretations that exist of the worm weaver and wild and the many theories everybody has, because in this capacity, everybody's correct. Nobody is incorrect because nobody is correct because nobody can be correct. And if you're thinking this is confusing, this is now the madness you begin to understand is what they want to cultivate when you're a follower of the worm. If there is no order and there is no agreed upon, this is what it is. Well, that's not serving the weaver, is it? But it's definitely corrupting what was named because we told you what its name was and its purpose was. But now we didn't tell you which version 
was the correct one. And it's for you to decide because as the weaver does, it did not create. It took what was left out there from the wild, shaped it different. And now whatever it is, is what it is, except the worm refuses to end it. And that would be, you know, terminating the definition. So you could understand it, move on. All fascinating, all great. This leads to better shit, though, is what I'm going to say. <laughs> That's there for the high end. And yes, you could do that. Great, great, by the way, food for um, your, your theurgy journeys. I will not take away from that. What is more interesting is when you get into the actual specific names of the urge worms and their servants and the hierarchy in Malpheus that exists. And, you know, you got some great names. And you already mentioned Fobok. And then you got the, the, the Thuraferge. can never pronounce that name 100%. Because is, is it Thuraferge or is it Thur? Thuraferge. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I have no clue. Right. And I love the words that my mouth wants to say. <laughs> Kalub, the urge of consumption, the night of entropy, the worm spawn. Right. There's <laughs> so many badass, high octane names for the Gru to hopefully never, ever have to face willingly, but make great epic stories if they face samples of it or mm-hmm. bump into it. Or if you're bold and strong enough, maybe even directly to thwart them. But these are all dangerous entities in their own rights that don't have hardened stats to go by. One can argue they're not even killable. They, it's like they serve ideals that it exists on behalf of the worm. For instance, the master of stagnation, the lord of disease. That is what Thurifurge is. And Thurifuge, whatever. Um, but the point, <laughs> the point I get to is that it's like they're almost, it's like the idea of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. That's what these entities remind me of, that they're here to serve a purpose. And that purpose is, in essence, like an emotion or a deed that it eternally does. But usually it works through people and inspires them to do it, which is the corrupting nature of the worm, which is what these things do. The fact that you could see it on the real, that's madness. And when you did, how would you deal with that? And where would you deal with that? It would be a twisted storyteller to ever make players go through stuff like that to find it and have open <laughs> help about it. And um, so, but the book says, if you want to, here it is, have an idea of how to set it up and have fun with it. And the fun of the worm in the umber is a, is a great chapter too, to end out on the cosmology. But what else we got in here? Well, that's the cosmology and that's what they have there. And they, they revisit that and do a good job. Um, we're going to jump to the actual, because Pentex is in here, and why they have Pentex in here is because they updated. I'm just going to say it, plain and simple. They they went through a couple board changes by now, and uh, they got new people on a new board. They got a more defined, uh, this is seventh generation. Here's what their update is and what they got going on. Here's what everybody wants to do. Um, they also have a picture here of that formation. You remember a long time ago, they asked about how the, uh, the Pentex corpus formed? Mm-hmm. You remember that story? Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, guys. Wait, wait, wait. It's the there's it's right after um Storm, whatever the hell his name is in the Wild West, they they kill him. But when he dies, like there's a, a, a oil company, right, that's birthed at like the same time or in the same year. And some people who were already serving the worm take it over, and that's the company that becomes Pentex. Am I close? Right, yeah. It's pretty <laughs> much Sean. It's almost spot on. And that's the uh that's that's the effect. But they have a nice picture of it of what it might be. And I like it because they took it absurdly right, right as it sounds. 
It's like a bald guy with suspenders and a bow tie holding a torch. And he's walking in. That's immediately what I thought of when I saw it. And I thought that was that was pretty cool, right? Walks yeah, in. Yeah. I got to do what I got to do. This is what he's doing. It's an interesting photo and, and a great callback to a, to a good book. Um, they're also cheeky. In here you see a little uh, rank and file comic strip they added to it, kind of describing what it's like to work for Pentex. When you get <laughs> to the boardroom, everyone's like, I think the devil is sitting in that picture and like a vampire and a weird alien. Like they're all... They're all doing this, but it has an excerpt in there as if somebody was writing on the Pentex board. Um, it says on, on the post-it note, I do not find this amusing. Tell Gates that if he doesn't stop improvising and start following the script, he's out permanently. Talents like his is easy to replace. <laughs> I, I can't stop laughing because Andrew Gates is the one who, who drew and uh, did the, the little comic strip and mention so they're even cheeky about of how this might be and it's all that love of what pentex is supposed to be uh that that it's in here it's not to say that the first set did it wrong because i still feel near and dear to my heart is all the the toys pentex made <laughs> for the previous one you know what i mean yeah like the board games and the what was not the gi joe but uh mr mystic yeah <laughs> Gush goose action bill combat badge that stuff was so fresh and uh, yep. to me still holds up. Might be because yep. I'm an old school fan. Could be because you haven't seen it yet. But the point is, is that when you when you put your eyes on it, you begin to get down. Okay, this this is real insidious, what they wanted Pentex to be. And absolutely. And they have everything. So more or less, instead of constantly repeating stuff that I know we've been over, is there anything that you saw, Mike, in here that was new that you were like, oh wow! Other than the cosmology that we we spent quite a bit of time on, um, it's not a big thing. Let me let me scroll up and find it. It's just you know I really put place a lot of value on those simple crutches that these books provide. Um, and there's a particular page at the end of the chapter where they're describing uh, Malpheus, the geography, uh, as I stall, mm-hmm. and here it is. Um, it gives you story hooks. It gives you story hooks about how to use this realm that is by design, both exquisitely terrible and nearly impossible to describe. <laughs> right. It, it, it gives you like these, just these four. Um, there's the mission of mercy, the power once lost, the interception and the Knights of the realms. And I won't like read them out, out verbatim, but it just tells you how to put people in a great big, horrible, awful place that they can't possibly understand but still maintain a sense of purpose so that your, your players don't just get off into the weeds when you give them something pretty to scare them with, you know? And I, I, I value that. I appreciate it. To that end, I actually enjoyed uh, the uh, update, taking the book of, uh, excuse me, the, the Fomori book and they made excerpts of it mm-hmm. and took like common uh, or popular breeders, um, breeder banes. Uh, what am I thinking mm-hmm. of? The uh, Fomori family, excuse me. That are commonly mm-hmm. made, and I threw them in there for you to see to make them easier and updated that theme. It's held. I, I rather enjoy that. I know as a storyteller, when I've ran uh, the worm enough, it was so useful to grab the book of the worm, kind of reference what you were going for, find an aspect of it, and throw that out there. And I'll give you a, tr- a, a, a tip that I do. Whenever you take a minion, instead of you just going, "Ah, that's right, here you go," I'm looking for a badass. The first run and walks down the street. What do you do now? <laughs> Consider using a minion 
one that operates accordingly as you read it and throwing it into your game, doing what it's supposed to do as you read it is. So, for example, um, you want a mysterious entity that uh, you want to use the Vrajanka, the weird aliens with all the multi-fingered hands and, you know, the sort of flip top heads with nothing but teeth, no eyes, no, no nose. <laughs> and you want to use them as this weird underground cult that's doing things and make them creepy. The greatest way to make them creepy is to make it to where the werewolves are trying to find it or discover them um, because they're like underground, right? Deep underground is where they're at. Um, they don't really talk either. And they definitely have weird, weird materials and things like that. It's, it's something to, to consider um, for, for your game system. That's a lot to deal with. And also if you found that immediately as werewolves, you probably just kill it and move on. And that would be that. But if they're trying to discover and track it, what might it look like? What, what is it leaving behind? And what are the writings it's trying to leave behind to communicate to whatever it is it's communicating to? And that's scarier. What is it doing? Why is it mutilating people and then cattle? And then what, what does this relate to it? Why is it that every time there's a person dead, there's a corresponding bovine dead? I'm pulling this out of the thinner. I'm not saying that's what they do. But in this mythical point, you know, of things that could happen, you, the ST, are writing up what it's actually doing with both, whether it's studying them or it's really trying to read the messages like omens of yore, but it can because that's the power of the worm with it. And they're worshiping the balance worm when it was in balance. We have no idea, but neither do your players. But they would love a story where they're investigating that one minion trying to figure it out. And that they would love it because that would scare the shit out of them. Their imaginations are going to run wild with what it could be and what's going on. And if they don't find trouble, it'll find them usually as they go through it. And we get back to that whole point, free will and corruption. And the farther they get to finding this thing, the closer they're going to get to, well, tainting themselves. Remember, the more you learn about the worm, the more it learns about you. Mm. You let it in mm-hmm. a little bit every time you learn a little bit more about it. And that's that's a fun thing. Later on, they have an actual like mechanic where um, worm lore becomes a thing, and knowing too much is a dangerous thing. I enjoy the hell out of that. I think it's very good that they have that, and we'll cross that bridge at a later date. But have you ever seen a theurge who learned about worm lore and didn't take it at character creation ever? <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually find it opposite. Usually, when, when players load up on it, I'm the one who chuckles. And say, yeah, take all you like. <laughs> take as much as you can handle. And someone will go, you're evil. I always warn them. <laughs> I always say, hey, I know you take it, but you know, you're not going to, you know, da da da. And they're like, I oh, know, we need to know about this. I'm good. You got it. It's always the theory <laughs> cracks the game. But anyway, um, that being the case, uh, we're just about out of time here at three minutes. And uh, I think we went on uh, for a length of time here about the Book of Worms, second edition. We hope you guys enjoyed this book. Use it. But then also uh, spread the word around. I hope this, if you hear this, you know, talk to everybody else about your insights from the Book of the Worm second ed. I want to know how you felt about it uh, when you got it, especially if you already owned the first one and have been using it. Did it enhance what you did? I'll let you know the secret. This is the first Book of the Worm I owned. The other one I got at like a discount at a store. I forget which one. And uh, oh, no, sorry. I got the Pentex book disc that's later, but I got that discounted at a store. This one was my brother's, the original Book of the Worm. And comparing the two, I liked the flavor text in the first edition Book of the Worm because it was in passion and it made you feel like you're part of the crazy. This one defined the crazy, so you actually knew the jump off points. Mm-hmm. So in the in the revised. But what did you think? 
uh, let us know. Um, thanks, Mike, once again, and thanks everybody for listening. We'll tune in next week and uh, talk to you then. See you later. Thank you for listening to our 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you like what you heard and would like to support us, please leave a review or share it with friends. Thanks again, and we'll catch you next time.